I'm glad you're here today. I uh, know that each of us has stuff going on in our life, uh, work and school concerns and stresses, uh, social concerns, financial concerns, uh, and yet God in his great providence has led you to be here this morning. Uh, he's led you to this moment where you're gathered with the people of God to worship God. Uh, that gives me great joy. So uh, we're in Acts 20 today. Grab your Bible. I ask you to open up to that. Um, if you remember getting there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts uh, in the New Testament. And so uh, this morning we've got this, this interesting passage. Uh, I find it interesting. Maybe you will too. Uh, and we're going to read the first 12 verses to start off with. And then there's four verses at the very end that we'll read when we get to that point. But let's start chapter 1. Uh, sorry, don't go that far back. Chapter 20, verse 1. <clears throat> After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sobater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, <clears throat> Aristarchus, and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychus, and Troph Trophimus. Uh, they went on ahead and were waiting at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were, many lamps, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named <clears throat> Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while, until day work, day, daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. And the grass withers, and the flower fades. <coughs> Let's pray. Lord, this is a strange little passage. Uh, but we know that you don't tell us that some scripture is breathed out by you, and that some scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. No. Uh, you have spoken to us, and you have told us that all Scripture is breathed out by you and profitable for teaching, for proof, and for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so we can be sure that our time in this passage today will be beneficial for us in honoring to you. And Lord, our prayer is that these verses would better equip us to be complete and equipped for every good work, as you have stated in 2 Timothy 3.17. Now please help to keep us awake this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So go ahead and raise your hand if this is your favorite passage in all of Scripture. Nobody. What about top ten? Top ten favorite passage in all of Scripture. Top hundred? Top one hundred. We finally hit it, right? Uh, so it, it doesn't show up to many of you real quick in your list of like, that's my favorite passage. I'm going to write it on my mirror and, you know, put it places where I'm going to see it all the time. 
which means that, you know, if we kind of went through every week and we just selected passages or topics each week, um, that we would probably never, ever get to this portion of Scripture. And, and the truth is, that would be terrible since, since really, you know, focusing our attention on this portion of God's Word um, reveals some wonderful encouragement to us as the people of God. And, and so I'm glad that we end up doing it this way. Um, you know, at, at first glance, and, and to be honest, I, I say that because part of me, when I first read this, when I come to it, you know, at the beginning of the week, and I'm like, oh, that's our text this week. Oh, man, what did we do? Uh, you know, I want to abandon that and go the other way. Uh, but by the end of the week, I am so pleased that that's the way we do it. See, um, <clears throat> you read this and you think, at first glance, I, I, you might just think, or rather, I might just think that this, this is a, <clears throat> a lesson to you. It teaches you all not to fall asleep during my preaching, right? <clears throat> um, but I know you all are some pretty witty people. Uh, and one of you would counter that perhaps this is a lesson to me, not to preach long, boring sermons so that your people don't die. <laughs> all right. Uh, and then I might remind you, that's why we meet at 9 a.m. in the morning, right? That way I can preach long, boring sermons and no one dies as a result of it, right? Uh, that's also why these windows don't open, I hope. <clears throat> um, and, and you think about that, and that's what our attention comes to, but that's really not what this passage is about. Um, you know, what's, what's great about this passage here is that it, it, shows us, um, it shows us more of how the church actually functions uh, than we might realize at first. It's, it's kind of a picture of the church functioning. I mean, think about this. You, you've got your ideas about Apostle Paul, right? We, we tend to think of him as this missionary. He's traveling around. Or we think of him as an evangelist. He preaches the gospel every place he goes. And, and those are true things, you know. We might even call him a traveling apologist because he in, engages in this defense of the gospel back and forth. You know, what's great about this is that we see a different picture of, of who Christ is. Um, it's a picture of, of Paul uh, as an encourager. We see him as a, a pastor, uh, not just preaching to the lost, but strengthening those in the faith, building up existing churches. We see him showing affection to those that he's speaking with and engaging with. We, we see him as part of something much bigger than just Paul. And again, we're, we're seeing what a powerful thing it is uh, to encourage others and to be encouraged by our brothers and sisters in Christ. And in fact, three times in this, this short passage right here, uh, the Greek word parakaleo shows up. Um, that's a, a word that we typically in English translate to encourage. Uh, one time in our text, verse, verse 12, it's actually translated as comforted because that's the result of encouraging someone. Um, so let's dig into the text. Let's just jump into it, um, gain a better understanding of, of what godly encouragement is. Uh, and the first thing we see here is how physical presence serves to build up the body. Uh, you see, last week, you remember we had the riots, right? Uh, or almost riots. I guess they weren't technically riots. Uh, in Ephesus, and, and we saw that here, after all that, Paul gathers all the Christians in Ephesus together, uh, and, and he speaks to them and he encourages them. That's what it says right there. He encouraged them. Um, you ever realize that the, the word encourage in English is really from those two words, in and encourage. The word courage is right in the middle of there. Uh, it means to, to instill or to fill somebody with courage, to give courage for a, for a challenge before you so that, uh, you know, so understand that an encouragement is not just empty affirmation uh, like we tend to think of it in our culture. You know, I'll encourage you to absolutely anything. Um, you see, empty affirmation just makes you more impressed with yourself and your own abilities. It builds you up in that regard. Um, but they're empty, right? Often empty. 
you could sit me down and tell me, Brian, I think you can make an NBA team. I think you can do it. And, and that might build me up, and I start to think, yeah, I could probably make an NBA team. If you've ever seen me play basketball, you know I can't make an NBA team. Even if I was seven foot tall, I couldn't make an NBA team. Um, and, and so we have this difference, you know, the, that this real, this, this genuine gospel encouragement uh, really should lead us to be impressed with, with Christ. It should lead us to be secure in, in, in Jesus Christ. It, it builds up our, our courage based on who Jesus is, not on who we are. Because inevitably there are, there are times when, when those whose faith is in Christ will doubt either the realness of God or the goodness of God. And in those moments, we need our covenant family to come alongside us. Uh, we need them to, to come into our lives and encourage us and point us back to Christ, point us back to the realness of the gospel, point us back to the word which builds up who Christ is in our life. And so then before Paul leaves them, um, leaves them into this hostile environment that they, they live in, he, he's physically present. And he speaks words to give them courage for the difficult challenges that are sure to come in their life. And so in this first section, we see his, his travels then take him to be bodily present in the lives of already established churches in Macedonia and Greece. And so he's going there. That's part of the way he's showing his care for them. In fact, sometimes we see Paul can't get somewhere. And he writes them and he tells them how much he wants to be present with them, right? Uh, verse 2 here, though, we see that he tells us, uh, verse 2 rather, tells us he gives them encouragement during these trips as he travels See, sometimes the most encouraging thing that we can do uh, for our brothers and sisters in, in Christ, particularly when we're facing challenges, when we're facing sadness, is just to be with them. I mean, how many of your life have had that moment where you're just broken and someone just comes to be with you and it means so much, no matter what they say? Um, just their presence. And so the second way then that we see Paul is encouraging is simply that how he remains steadfast when he is facing suffering and opposition of all sorts. I mean, how many times have other Christians looked at Paul and they've seen him suffer? They've seen him thrown in jail. They've seen him beaten. They've seen him, uh, uh, you know, sp spoken of horribly. And he always remains steadfast. You think that doesn't encourage? Uh, we see here in verse 3 that another plot has been made to kill him. I don't know. He's about to get on a boat. Maybe he hears from someone that the plan is they're going to kill Paul and throw him overboard, something like that. Uh, it's a good way to get rid of a body, apparently. And uh, for whatever reason, then he decides, I'm going to take the land route, uh, as opposed to getting killed on his boat ride. And he does that. Uh, and so then later in chapter, uh, in this same chapter, 23 and 24, we'll see next week, but it says this. It says, the Holy Spirit, this is Paul speaking, the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. See, Paul never, ever gives this impression to people that if, if you come to Christ, life is going to be easy. And that's good. Because the truth is, when you're involved in the gospel, when you're involved in Christ, it is very likely that someone will be against you because of it. I mean, you think of your own life. I mean, can you think in your own history, if at any point in your life, um, has someone been upset at you because of your faith in Jesus Christ or because of the values that come with that faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul encourages us, and, and we can encourage each other as we remain steadfast in the truth, even when we know that faith in Jesus might lead some to oppose us. Okay, moving along. The third way. The third way that we see Paul encouraging the established churches um, is his acknowledgement 
that gospel ministry is a team project. It is always a partnership. You see all the names listed there in verses 4 through 5? Um, you saw me struggle with them, right? Uh, it's like Paul intentionally selected the hardest names to pronounce uh, and, and put them in there just so someday someone would have to read these. It's really a really diverse group of people. Some of them you recognize, some of them you probably don't recognize. Um, Aristarchus, he was the, the one last week we saw pushed in the theater and when the riot was coming out and they were ready to do some, uh, some horrible things to him probably. And, and yet here he is still hanging out with Paul. He hasn't abandoned him. Like That's the kind of friend his mom's like, don't hang out with Paul, you will get killed. And here he is anyway because the gospel is bigger than that. Um, Timothy, we see his name. He's a young pastor. Paul's going to write letters to him, First and Second Timothy, uh, probably a few others. Uh, Tychicus, whose name I cannot pronounce, uh, he was like a mailman. Um, he delivered the letters of Colossians and Ephesians for Paul. Um, so there's him. The big thing we see here, though, is that uh, <clears throat> while Paul's name is used most often, it, he's not doing this alone. I mean, we're real bad at just, just focusing on Paul and skipping over everyone else's name, but he's not doing it alone. Uh, and, and honestly, that's why I hate it when churches are referred to by the pastor's name, you know? Uh, yeah, that's, that's Tony Felicia's church. No, it's not. Um, I do it too. I, you know, I, I kind of catch myself doing this, and I almost loathe myself for it afterwards, you know, like, I'm so sorry I did that. Um, you know, she goes to Tim Keller's church. Is it Tim Keller's church? Um, it's not. And that's why it's just a pet peeve there. Um, the point is, though, that the church is the people of God. We worship together. We minister together. It's a partnership. Uh, you know, don't forget that in, in Luke 10, when Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. In that moment afterwards, he sends out 72 disciples to go into cities, right? Um, and, and, and to preach. And he, he didn't send them alone. We even see that we think the most effective way would be to get 72 cities go. Uh, but he sends them out in pairs. And so it's half of that. John, what's the math? 36? Uh, so 36 pairs. And, and Paul doesn't do it alone, right? Uh, not a day goes by that I don't thank the Lord that we are not planting a church in the city of Manhattan alone. Um, because, you know, one of the most frustrating moments in recent church history, say the last hundred years, has been that um, the churches often will follow the CEO model uh, of ministry. And, and it means these churches are set up, there's no authority structure, um, the pastor does whatever he wants with no accountability, there's no elders, uh, and it functions like an entrepreneur starting a business, which is fine when you're starting a business, but not for church. Uh, and what we've seen is often these churches are built around a personality and they grow up quick with amazing marketing um, and around the name of this pastor. And unfortunately, what we've also seen is that often, you know, numbers that are way too high to be okay with, uh, these churches come crashing down because it was built around one man who was not Jesus Christ. And, and when that happens, we might look at it and say, that's a big organization, but it's not a church. Um, you know, to be a church, you've got to have Jesus as your head, and you've got to have uh, a functioning body of Christ, the church, working together. And when we look at Paul, we quickly see that he was not a good CEO. Paul was a faithful, faithful proclaimer of the gospel, and he was a caring shepherd for the people of God. See, Paul understood that the church needed to develop leaders for the future, too, that he couldn't be the only person. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2, uh, he writes to Timothy, remember a young pastor, and he says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 
And so then we got to be set up, you know, even today in the church, we've got to be set up in such a way that if I get struck by lightning tonight, or, or more likely die in a plane wreck or something like that, because that's what I'm sure it's going to go. If something like that were to happen, uh, though, that somebody else would step in here next week and the church would go on. That's the way the church must be built. And, and, and you know, is, it, you ask that question, you know, is there part of me that wishes that wasn't so? Is there a part of me that, that sometimes thinks, you know what, I wish it would all just fall apart without me? Um, you know, to somehow prove how important I am? And, and yeah, you know, there's some days where that thought comes to my mind. And to be honest, that's a sinful thought that has to be repented of. Um, you see, the church is a, a partnership of many who have received faith in Christ. And together we make up the body of Christ. I mentioned it before, right? This is the 100th worship service, which sounds kind of little when you're in a congregation's building right now that's been around for 150 years. Um, but, you know, 100 worship services, that means that a 100 times someone has played the piano and the guitar or the violin or the viola and led singing. 100 times someone has preached or assisted in, in leading the worship. 100 times someone has come early and gone down and filled up the communion cups. 100 times someone has baked the communion bread in their kitchen. 100 times someone handed out bulletins and they, and they welcomed people as they arrived here. Uh, I actually remember back to the first service as a brother in, uh, in Christ and from our, a church in Kansas City who was here and he was standing at the door greeting people. Um, He's never been to another service ever again, ever. Uh, but he came out, and he was part of the team on that day, so that when people walked through that door to our first worship service, there was someone greeting them with a smile at the door. A hundred times, two people found themselves in the nursery questioning why anyone ever has children. <laughs> really, a hundred times, you know, someone lovingly served in the nursery. Uh, to care for our youngest children during this worship service. Uh, a hundred times someone has run the sound, and a hundred times ushers have been selected to receive the offering. A hundred times Trisha Dunning has gone to the bank after the week in service to make a deposit. Uh, a hundred times these bulletins in your hands have been made and stapled and folded, and, and a hundred times we clean up the service following the, or the sanctuary after the service. And, and here's the deal. Most of these responsibilities have been handled by a variety of people so that no one actually had to do it a hundred times. And that's just the portion of uh, the partnership and ministry that is tied to this worship service. That doesn't include Sunday school or hosting parish groups or cooking fellowship meals or uh, you know, meals for new parents or community service projects or hosting presbytery meetings or weddings and baby showers and leading book studies and all sorts of other things that make up the life of the church. They don't even include that. You know, it doesn't even include, uh, you know, you inviting your friends and your neighbors to come and worship with us. And it doesn't include your, your ministering to people in the name of Jesus in a thousand different ways that you think is not the church, uh, but really is the church as we interact with community. Uh, Laura uses the phrase in our, our family that I think applies well to the covenant family as well. Um, she tells our children, everyone rose. You know what that means? Um, meaning, we're on this boat together. And the only way we're going to get there is if everyone rose. No one person rose alone. Uh, no one's carrying the load alone. Uh, some may row longer and stronger, and, and maybe you row more or less depending upon the stage of life that you're in right now. Uh, but we all row together, and we're rowing towards a common goal. Then the fourth way that we see Paul encouraging us is, is through the spoken word. 
Uh, he comes to the city of Troas, right? Uh, he's going to stay there just seven days. There is a church already there, and, and two things take place. They're breaking bread, and Paul speaks. Those are the two main events that we see in this text. And, and this is the first occurrence where we see the church gathered for worship on the first day of the week. You and I take it for granted. That's all we've ever known. Um, but they are changing from the last day of the week, which was the Jewish Sabbath. And this change is, is not out of convenience. It's not because they found an empty building somewhere that was cheap to rent. Uh, it's because Jesus, our Savior, was risen from the dead on the first day of the week. And so that has become um, what is often called the Christian Sabbath or uh, the Lord's Day. If you look at the front of your bulletin, you'll see we put the Lord's Day instead of Sunday there for that very reason. Um, not against using the word Sunday, just a more accurate term. Uh, and it's a day that's set apart for worship of God and resting in the gospel. And, and that's why we encourage you that this service is a, a place for you and your family to come, to make this a priority in your life, to be worshiping with the people of God when it comes on Sunday. Uh, and so in our passage today, Paul is preaching, and they didn't care that it was midnight, which is crazy to me. Um, you know, they went out of their way to put themselves in a position where they were going to be nourished by, by the preaching of the word, uh, by the um, by this time of teaching. And, and verse 8 tells us oddly, right, the room is full of lamps. You think, well, what is the point of that? Um, you and I picture little, little lamps, but it's, it's torches. There's burning torches. It literally means burning torches. It was, um, it was very muggy in there. The oxygen gets sucked out because of the torches. That's kind of the environment we're talking about. Uh, and this young man, somewhere between the ages of 8 and 14, that's what the word young man meant at that point, uh, named uh, Eutychus, is sitting in a window, and ironically, this is one of the ironic things, his name means good fortune, right? So it was unfortunate uh, that he falls asleep and falls out of the window. And again, you and I try to picture windows like we think of them, you know? Uh, cats looking out of them. That's not what windows were originally designed for. Uh, it comes from two words, wind and door, uh, and they were for letting in fresh air into the building so that it wouldn't get all stuffy and gross. And, and so they began at floor level, not high like that. They were like a door and went up very high so that a lot of wind could blow in. And so this young man is sitting on the ledge. Uh, and keep in mind, these people work six days a week. It's very likely that he'd actually worked this day and he's coming in exhausted. Uh, and he's sitting there and he falls asleep. Um, see, I'll, I'll never forget the first time I ever preached at Redeemer in Kansas City. Um, as I, I preached and as I'm looking out, I, I watched people fall asleep. Not just like those off a little. I'm talking like drooling on yourself, out cold, where it was hard to not, not just stop and just stare at them like as they're sleeping. Um, and I took it so personally. It's the first time I've done it. I just felt dejected. Um, I thought I should never preach again. Everyone will fall asleep if I do. Uh, and afterwards I went, I went down and I was telling the other two pastors there uh, that some people fell asleep and I'm just depressed. Uh, and they both at the same time were like, was it so-and-so and so-and-so? And, and I was like, yes. And they're like, oh, don't worry, they fall asleep every week. <laughs> and that made me feel much better. Uh, um, <clears throat> you know, that, that they did. And, and it's true, you know, sometimes sermons do go too long. John Newton, who, who you know, we might not know he said this, he famously said, uh, when weariness begins, edification ends. Um, or as, as Bob Raymond, I've mentioned to you before, in far less poetic language has said uh, to me, after 25 minutes, I don't hear a word you say. 
uh, along to the same points. Now, uh, I know there are good reasons people fall asleep in sermons, you know, working late and they want to come to worship anyway, and I'd much prefer they be here and maybe doze off than, than just not come out of fear for that, or maybe medication is causing it, things of that nature, and so I, I've learned not to, to, to really pass judgment when I see this happen, and luckily we're small enough here that you're all afraid to fall asleep at this point, right? Um, however, let me encourage you, because I know you can come in here tired and, and, and exhausted, that one of the ways we fight that is this active participant in, in worship. You're not just sitting there passively in, in the worship service. You know, when we, when we stand to sing a song or a, a hymn, you know, push out other thoughts. Focus your mind on the fact that you are actually singing this to God. I think we forget that sometimes, like we're just a bunch of people in a room singing to the roof. No, you're singing to God who hears you. You know, think about what are the words I'm singing to God? What am I saying? Uh, same thing with the prayers. Uh, you know, during the pastoral prayers or other prayers, listen, consider what's being said. You can affirm it in a sense that you're praying along with whoever's praying. You know, know that, like, think about that. It's kind of this, this chorus uh, in a sense. You know, it, get out of your mind that prayer is a timeout in the service for you just to doze off and then wake up when it's over, right? Um, so anyway, back to our package. Uh, Eutychus falls out the window, and he goes down three stories, and he is dead. Honestly, when you read this in written form, it seems kind of, kind of humorous. But, it, but it's not. You know, kind of imagine if, if one of us today um, were, I guess you can't fall out of that window, so something were to fall on you and actually kill you during a service. That'd be some seriously emotional trauma to deal with. Um, as we're all sitting around and watching this, right? And, and that leads us to this final way that we see Paul encouraged in this passage, uh, personal affection. And at times, physical affection is encouraging. In verse 10, Paul's not likely the first one to get to, to Eutychus. Am I pronouncing that right? That does not sound right. We're going to go with it anyway. Uh, first one to get to Eutychus, but he does go to him. And we tend to, to translate, you know, that phrase there, taken up dead. We tend to think that means uh, they thought he was dead, but he wasn't actually dead. That's, that's not the case here. Uh, the boy is dead. Dead, dead. And when Paul says in verse 10, do not be alarmed for his life is in him, he, he's saying that he's, he's returning life to him. This is the last of, of eight times in Scripture that anyone dies and, and is raised back from the dead. And what we see here is... And Paul is this tender affection. He takes the boy in his arms. Um, you know, we live in this, this era where physical touch is just absolutely taboo in our, our culture. Uh, I mean, think about it. We're all afraid to ever touch anyone. Um, the first century church greeted each other with a holy kiss. And, and we're kind of anxious and awkward about side hugs, right? Um, that's where we've gotten to. But... You know, there is something to be said of, of being discerning what is appropriate physical touch. Um, but understand that it, it has a place when we're comforting each other. Um, someone is hurting. Godly, good, like, okay? There's so many conditions you put on that at this point. But, um, but don't, don't just push it out as I'm never, ever allowed to make contact with another person. It's really sad that we've gotten to that. And, and we see Paul here. He embraces this young man. You know, he's holding him. And God returns life to him. Now, I can't do that. John can't do that. Travis can't do that. No one in this room can do that. If you fall out that window and you die, uh, the only thing we can do is, is call 911 and then comfort those who are still alive. Um, it, but 
Even though we can't do that, we can still learn here from this, this tenderness. And, you know, as tough as we know Paul to be, that he, he never backs away from anything. And yet, you know, here he is speaking these tender words of encouragement to so many. Uh, not just in this moment, but in other letters. You remember uh, Philippians, the first book we preached through as a, as a church. In, in chapter 2, Paul wrote, you know Timothy's proven worth. You know Timothy's proven worth. How'd you like to hear that about you? You know? You know your name's proven worth. I mean, how encouraged are people when you tenderly acknowledge what a blessing you are to them? And I know that often we think about how much we appreciate each other, others. Uh, Let me suggest to you that you go the next step and you actually verbalize that appreciation to them or write it to them. You know, uh, parents... Uh, some of you are naturally affectionate verbally and physically, and, and it comes easy to you. That's wonderful. Your kids need that. But um, some of you, that's not natural to you. Learn it. Your, your children need your affection. Now, uh, looking back to this, I, I kind of love the way this goes down. A, a boy dies and comes back to life. We're probably canceling our service at that point. Like, let's just go home resettle and and they don't they just continue discussion until daybreak they don't even take the boy home right he's still there um and they stay all night but you know this was the first recorded lock-in in church history you know they were all measurable the next day um i hate lock-ins that was the worst thing about youth ministry was lock-ins no no offense to anyone who stayed locked in with me um i don't do well with late nights but, but here they, they saw this value of, of real fellowship, and, and they valued it over sleep for this particular night. Uh, you'll know I was, I was recently in Mississippi for this pastor's conference-like thing. They say not to call it a conference, so I don't know what to call it. Um, but anyway, the first night I was so tired. We have this cabin, there's eight, eight beds in it, and I climb into my bunk, uh, and I'm ready to go to bed. I'm so tired. And then five minutes later, the door swings open. And this, this friend of mine, JC, is shouting, what do you think you're doing? Jesse, I'm, I'm so tired. I'm going to bed. And then he asked me, how many days are in a year? What? 365, I think. <laughs> and then he asked, and how many nights do you have the opportunity to hang out with me? And I'm, I guess, three, and I'm starting to think that's too many. <laughs> and it, it went back and forth, and he was just, relentless and so annoying but he was right and I I, you know I I stayed up the other two nights I resisted him that first night but I stayed up the other two nights um, with him and a few other guys and my soul was nourished by the mutual encouragement of being with these brothers in Christ that came from it Um, rest is important God made your body to need rest and we typically don't get enough of it but Time is limited, and so take advantage of opportunities when you have them uh, to encourage and to be encouraged to others. You know, but, but keep in mind, there is a distinction between you know, staying up late to do stupid things, college students, I'm talking to you particularly here, um, and staying up late for godly encouragement. One of those is a great benefit to you. One of those tends to be really foolish, okay? Understand that distinction. Uh, Okay, so then Eutychus then is, is taken away alive, right? We see there at the end. Uh, and Luke, using his catchphrase, we've realized at this point, tells us they were not a little comforted. Luke, they were greatly comforted. Um, all right, so let's look at these last four verses and we'll finish up. Starting in verse 13. Uh, but going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there. 
For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. Uh, and sailing from there, we came, the uh, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. Uh, for Paul had decided to sail pa past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So mostly travel information there. Uh, I do find verse 16 interesting. Um, you read that Paul chooses to sail past Ephesus, and his reason is basically because people are going to want to talk to me. Um, some of you introverts are thinking, this is my new favorite verse. Uh, every one of you, you won't admit it, but you've likely seen someone in a store and you walked the other way to avoid that person because you didn't want to get stuck talking to them for the rest of the day. Um, and, and to be honest, I, I find it hilarious in the text that Paul does this, that he's like, I'm not going to Ephesus because people will talk to me there. Uh, <clears throat> but I, I point it out so we can see that there is this balance between uh, accomplishing what needs to be accomplished and giving your time to people, and it takes discernment to know when people need your encouragement and when you need to stay on task or get the rest that you need. Um, you know, failing out of college because you were always helping some friend work through some mental ideas uh, would not be wise, right? So you could say, I was helping them. You, know, you also failed out of college. You shouldn't have been helping that much. Um, but let's, let's bring this to close before I put you to sleep today, right? Um, that would be the great irony that you fell asleep during this sermon. Uh, and I'll leave us with this. Do you know how to be a gospel encourager? Um, also, are you physically and emotionally present for those in your life who need you to be there? Physically and emotionally present. Are you modeling for those younger in the faith what steadfast in the faith of opposition looks like? Can someone see you go through a struggle, not pretend you're not going through a struggle, but see you go through a struggle and, and, and see you come out on the other side? Um, also, are you ministering as part of a larger body, not just alone? Uh, are you encouraging with your words? Meaning, are you building up others' confidence in Jesus Christ when they face doubts and struggles of all sorts? And this is so much more important than just empty statements of affirmation, and we've got to know the difference between those. Um, and finally, are you affectionate verbally and, and physically when it is appropriate to be so? And so this week, I'll, I'll give you, uh, I want you asking these questions, but um, also these other two questions. First, this one. Um, how might... I be encouraged in this moment. And I, I want you to ask that, not so you can be mad at people for the way they fail you in that moment, but so that you can learn in that, that moment uh, how to answer this second question much better, which is, how might I be a godly encouragement to those around me in this moment? Um, because we need encouragement, not empty affirmation. We need actual encouragement. And that means we actively see places we can do that, and then we move towards that. That's, that's part of us being a, a body together. Uh, let's pray. Lord, would you wake us from our slumber? Uh, would you protect our lives even when we, we do doze and find ourselves falling off the ledge to our own harm? Would you teach us what it means to, to be shepherded? And would you teach us to build each other up and to encourage those in the faith to grow in their faith? May we always be passionately evangelistic and all the while not lose sight of the need for spiritual nurture for all the days of our lives which you have graciously given us. We lift this prayer. 
We ask for encouragement, and we ask that you teach us to be encouragers. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.